Well, I do know it's been a little while now, but when I was preaching last time, I preached what I told you was going to be the third and final introductory message before jumping into this series in Isaiah. And I would have you notice in your bulletin or on the screen behind me that we are now officially, legitimately in Isaiah, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. So I think I can say I have kept my promise. But in a lot of ways, the sermon uh, this morning really is still introductory in nature, as the title implies. Um, still laying some foundation for what's to come. And it's not that I don't ever want to get into this book. I do. Um, but I, I thought that there is still a little bit more context that we could be helped by before we do dive in. And by context, I mean not just the historical context uh, surrounding Isaiah's ministry, although I do mean that, and we're going to talk about that, that is important. But by context, I'm also referring to our understanding of the prophetic role within Israel in general. What was the prophet's role all about? So we'll spend some time this morning thinking about that, and Lord willing, also thinking about what that means for you and me today. Because we recognize that in our current place in redemptive history, the moment that we live in now, God does not use the exact same means of declaring his will and his promises to his people as he did back then. We don't have an Isaiah or a Jeremiah going about proclaiming to us the word of the Lord, but we do have something greater. So we need to think not only about what God was doing then, but also about how what he was doing then applies to us today, how it relates to our lives as God's people today. So if I were to summarize kind of where we're going this morning, what I aim to do is first place Isaiah within its historical context, and then second place Isaiah, the man, the prophet, within the broader context of the prophetic ministry in general. And my, my hope and prayer is that in approaching things this way, that even by the end of this sermon, perhaps, perhaps, um, the book of Isaiah will begin to feel just a little bit less intimidating uh, than it may feel to you right now. Um, and that's not to say it won't be intimidating at all. To be honest, I still find Isaiah uh, to be intimidating, but much less so when I keep in mind that most of what Isaiah is saying has a particular historical reference. In other words, it's not just a collection of nebulous, abstract truths divorced from reality divorced from history. He is talking about things that actually happened in real life to real people with real consequences and also of things that will or would yet happen. And even though Isaiah uses, just like all the prophets do, use a lot of symbolism and poetry to communicate their message, still, this is actually much more concrete and practical than we sometimes think. Let's not forget that these timeless truths 
that Isaiah is communicating. And they are that. They are timeless truths, but they are still given in time. And they are anchored in history. Its timelessness does not mean that we divorce it from its context or ignore the fact that Isaiah's message was given to a certain people at a certain place with a certain purpose. In fact, it is keeping in mind that, keeping that in mind, that actually is what keeps Isaiah's message within reach of us. And taking his message out of time is what puts it beyond our grasp, because then we can no longer relate to it. Because then it doesn't deal with real life. All that to say, acknowledging the historical context in which Isaiah ministered and spoke uh, does make this all less intimidating. And remembering what his basic role was as a prophet, what he was sent to do, what his message was meant to accomplish, that also makes this book less intimidating. Those are the things that I want us to focus on this morning. So we'll begin then with the historical context. And we can feel pretty confident that this is a good place to start because that is where the book of Isaiah itself starts. Chapter 1, verse 1, locates Isaiah's ministry in a particular time and place in history. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. For those who lived in Judah, much closer to that history or who even lived that history, I'm sure those names uh, conjured up more to them than they do for us. Uh, Because they're not just names, are they? And they're not just names of kings either. They represent four different administrations, four chapters of Judah's history. And so if you lived during that time or close to it, probably you couldn't hear any one of those names without automatically associating it with the things that were going on during the reign of that king, without remembering what life was like, what the economy was like what the general culture was like, especially in its attitude toward religion or what the political landscape was like, remembering, you know, which foreign powers were we in conflict with when so-and-so was on the throne. It's like, like today if somebody mentioned some previous presidential administration, Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., Clinton, uh, Bush again, um, you know, Obama, Trump, Biden, You hear those names, and if you're old enough, and if you uh, lived it, you remember not just the names, but you remember the atmosphere. You remember the condition of the nation. And all of that matters because God's word doesn't come to us in a vacuum. His word penetrates history, and his word shapes history. It meets us where we're at. It has something to say to us and about us and about the situations in life that each one of us are presently facing. God's word confronts 
and it convicts and it comforts and it encourages and it fortifies his people in the context of our real fears and our real struggles and our real sins. And his word was doing that through Isaiah. So knowing something of the history, the context in which God's word came to his people through this prophet, it is important. Now that being said, my plan is not to jump into a full-blown history lesson uh, this morning, but just with some very broad brush strokes to paint a little bit of the picture of what was going on in and around Judah during the ministry of Isaiah. We see that Isaiah's ministry began in the reign of King Uzziah, most likely the very last year of his reign. Certainly that is the case if his call in chapter 6 is, is a reflection of his initial call to the ministry, which I'm, I'm convinced it is. So that calling, Isaiah said, came in the year that King Uzziah died, which was the year 740 B.C., after a long 52-year reign. That marks the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, 740 B.C. And then the end of his ministry came during the reign of Hezekiah, Hezekiah died in 686 B.C. So those would represent the bookends of Isaiah's ministry from 740 B.C. to somewhere around, or at least no later than, before uh, 686 B.C. That's roughly 50 years that he was ministering as a prophet. Now I'm going to come back to that period uh, again and talk very broadly about the landscape during that time, mostly the political landscape because we're going to talk about the religious landscape next week and in future weeks. But I want to quickly, uh, very quickly, pick up the history where we left it in the last message. It may not have been uh, terribly obvious uh, to you, but part of my goal in those first three introductory messages, besides highlighting these various uh, significant themes that would be relevant to the book of Isaiah, part of my goal was also to track some of the early history of God's people, hitting a few major milestones from Eden to Abraham to Sinai to the conquest of Canaan, and then, and then in the last message, um, to God's covenant with David. And so picking up then from David, I want to just very quickly get us from David to King Uzziah, to the start of Isaiah's ministry. As most of you know, under David and especially then under David's son, Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was really at its height in terms of the land area, the population, the, the wealth, military power, peace, architecture, engineering, the list could go on and on. Israel was incredibly, incredibly impressive. Israel had become the envy of the nations. Kings and queens from distant lands marveled at what Israel had become. But that all changed in a single generation under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The kingdom of Israel split ten tribes of the twelve, ten left. They rejected Solomon's son as king, and they chose another king outside of the Davidic family by the name of Jeroboam to be king over them. 
And it was those ten northern tribes under Jeroboam that retained the name Israel, while the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, made up the kingdom of Judah. And it was the kingdom of Judah that remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. Now, the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, it is essentially the history and story of apostasy from beginning to end. Having rejected God's king, the Davidic king, they continued to reject God's rule and God's law. The kings of Israel led their people into idolatry and all kinds of wickedness until finally in 722 BC, which is during the ministry of Isaiah, in fact, even though Isaiah was not ministering to the northern kingdom, still during the ministry of Isaiah, God brought upon Israel the curses that he promised, the curses that he had spelled out in the covenant he made at Sinai. He crushed Israel. In the words of 2 Kings 17, he cast them out of his sight. He removed them from the land. He removed them from his presence and exiled them to Assyria. And from that moment on, the northern kingdom of Israel was no more. Only Judah was left. Now Judah was not so much better than her sister to the north. Second Kings 17 that I just referred to uh, a moment ago and which primarily recounts the, the demise of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. Still, Second Kings 17 says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And if you read through First and Second Kings, you see that. But still, Judah... Judah had something that Israel didn't. Certain promises. The covenant that God made with David and with David's sons. And that is why, even after the accounts given of many of Judah's wicked and idolatrous kings, you read words like this. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Or again, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Those statements from the Lord make you realize, don't they, how important it is to be represented by a righteous king. To be part of a kingdom that is favored by God, showered with his grace and blessing, blessings that have all been merited, not by us, but merited for us by that kingdom's righteous king. If you're a Christian, I have just described you. I have described what you have. Your position. Your possession. You realize, don't you, that you are part of a kingdom. 
in which every blessing of God is outpoured on account of its righteous King, the Son of David, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's all for his sake. If you know the favor of God today, if he has shown you grace and mercy, understand that it was earned, but not by you. It was earned for you by that one Davidic king who represents you and leads you. God shows grace to us on account of him and him only. That's it. That's it. So if you are here today and you don't acknowledge Jesus as your king, meaning you don't bow to him, you don't listen to him, you don't submit to him, you don't worship and adore him, you don't love him, even though, yes, you may go to church, you may attend the youth group, you may read your Bible, you may have godly friends and godly parents, but still you live as though you were king or queen of your own life then what you need to understand is that you are outside of Christ's kingdom. Christ is king, but he's not your king. And you're in the worst position you could possibly be in. Because it is only, only in Christ's kingdom that God's saving grace is known. It is only for Christ's sake that God extends mercy. So if that is you or you think that may be you, then you need to run to refuge in God's king. You do. You need to run to Jesus. You need to bow to him. In him and in his kingdom are where God's grace and mercy are found. And nowhere else. Nowhere else. Now with regard to Judah, as I said earlier, God did show grace to that kingdom on account of David. On account of David. And God showed grace and mercy to that kingdom on account of those sons of David that ruled in faithfulness to God's law. There were not many of them, but there were several of whom it was written, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or He did according to all that his father David had done. Of the four kings mentioned in Isaiah 1.1, Uzziah was one of those godly kings, as were Jotham and Hezekiah, three of the four. Not perfect kings by any means, but, but faithful. And as I said, Judah was blessed on account of her king's faithfulness. But Judah also suffered, tremendously suffered on account of her many faithless kings, one of which was King Ahaz, also mentioned in verse 1, a king that Isaiah would have a lot of dealings with during his, his ministry and during Ahaz's reign from 735 to 715. Now, I will come back to Isaiah's interaction with these kings a little bit later, but I did say I want to roughly sketch the landscape for you at the time of of Isaiah's ministry and what it was like there in Judah. So when Isaiah began his ministry at the end of Uzziah's reign, 740 BC, Judah had just enjoyed a long period of, of relative peace and stability. 
Uh, again, this was a, a very long and, and prosperous reign of Uzziah, 52 years. Judah was not, was not a superpower on the world stage uh, by any means. Um, although they did have some military success against smaller kingdoms like the Philistines, they had uh, been receiving tribute from uh, Ammonites and others. But a big part of Judah's relative peace and prosperity during the reign of Uzziah was because those historic superpowers of Egypt or Assyria happened to be in a period of decline. Assyria especially. Um, it was dealing with internal problems, also with uh, foreign threats to the north of them that kept them out of the, the Mediterranean coast and far from Israel and Judah. But even before Uzziah's death, the climate started to change. Assyria was beginning again to regain strength and to move, to move south and west toward the Mediterranean. By the start of Ahaz's reign in 735, already they had asserted complete dominance over the northern kingdom of Israel and its surrounding neighbors. And then in just another 10 years, in 722, Israel, with its capital, Samaria, would finally and ultimately fall to the Assyrian army for good. And as Judah feared, Assyria wasn't ready to stop there. They kept pushing farther south. They went on to invade the southern kingdom, and by 701, they had essentially either taken control of or demolished all of Judah, with the exception of its capital city, Jerusalem, which they surrounded with 185,000 soldiers. Things were not looking good. And as we will see next week, that picture of Judah, nearly annihilated, with the invading army at its neck, that picture of Judah is what the book of Isaiah opens with. It's like you can imagine, you know, the start of a movie. The, the, the opening credits begin to roll. The camera is panning over this land, utterly devastated, towns completely ruined by the Assyrian army. That is how Isaiah starts. Jerusalem alone is left standing, but completely surrounded. And it seems like she would not be standing for long. Essentially, all of the first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, has in the background or in the foreground this Assyrian crisis, especially as it was being dealt with by Ahaz and Hezekiah. So basically, we're talking about the years 735 to 701 B.C. And when I said earlier that understanding the historical context can make the book of Isaiah less intimidating, I mean that it helps to recognize that so much, so much of what Isaiah is saying in these first 39 chapters, it is rooted in things that took place in and around Judah over a matter of just 35 years. And then, even then, there's just a few specific events within those 35 years that are primarily in view. 
primarily. I mean, I don't want to overstate that. And certainly I don't mean that Isaiah's message doesn't go beyond that. Uh, it does be, go beyond that history, absolutely. The message of Isaiah contains prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ's first coming, prophecy that will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming, also prophecy that is being fulfilled presently through Christ's church. But still, even then, I don't think we understand and appreciate that prophecy rightly unless we see it in the context in which Isaiah gave it. So as I said, this first half of the book pertains primarily to that Assyrian crisis. The second half of the book, chapters 40 to 66, look beyond the Assyrian crisis to the next major crisis for Judah. And that was the rising Babylonian kingdom. And that's where Isaiah begins to address Judah as those who have come under God's judgment and have been taken into exile which they will be by Babylon, taken into exile. And you'll remember that was exactly, exactly what God promised, what he threatened in that covenant that he made with his people at Sinai. If his people were unfaithful, they would reap the curse, which would involve their removal from the land that God had promised and that land that God promised to dwell in with them. Already, you remember, that happened to Israel, to that northern kingdom, but not yet for Judah. And for Judah, that would not happen in Isaiah's lifetime either. But from about 605 B.C. until Jerusalem and Judah finally fell to Babylon in 586 B.C., most of Judah's inhabitants would be taken into exile. And that is the audience that Isaiah has in view in chapters 40 to 66. Judah in exile. But it's not, it's not their exile that he's focused on. It is their restoration, their salvation. Above anything else, the second half of Isaiah brings a word of comfort to God's people. And that is how it begins, chapter 40, with those words, comfort. Comfort my People, says your God. He is exhorting them to keep hoping and trusting in that coming salvation. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Restoration is promised to the people of God. He will, he will redeem them. He will restore them. So take heart, you burdened ones. You fearful ones, you discouraged ones, you hurting ones. Your God who promised is faithful and he will surely do it. Now I want to come back to verse 1 and those four kings that are listed there. Of those four, the book of Isaiah highlights the prophet's interaction with two of them in particular. Those last two, Ahaz and Hezekiah. We'll be talking about 
Isaiah's message to those kings as it comes up uh, later in the book. But I want to consider now why, why Isaiah's ministry was directed to those kings in the first place. And here is where, if I had an outline, we would be transitioning to the, the second main point that I mentioned earlier, where I want to talk about the role of the prophet more generally. Not every prophet probably had the direct access to a king like Isaiah did. Uh, many of them did, and, and I'll give some examples of, of them as well in a moment, but even those who didn't still had a ministry that was especially directed to the nation's leadership. And the reason for that is because the direction of the nation largely depended upon the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of those in charge. We read from Deuteronomy 17 earlier in the service. God gave there directives for what those future kings of Israel were to be. And the chief requirement that God gave for his people's kings was that they rule according to God's word, that they keep his covenant. See, Israel's king was never, never to think of himself as an autonomous ruler. He was to rule as one who was himself, like all of his fellow countrymen, under the rule and law of God. God's word was the law of the land. And the king had to be held accountable to it. And so from the very beginning of Israel's monarchy, we see God raise up prophets for that particular purpose, to hold the kings accountable to the word of the Lord. We see that over and over again. You can think of examples like from the first king, Saul. God sent Samuel to confront him. The prophet Nathan sent to confront David. The prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam, Elijah and Micaiah to Ahab, Isaiah to Ahaz and Hezekiah. And of course, we could go on and on. The point God was making to those rulers was that they were to exercise authority under his word, subject to his word. And in that sense, within Israel, the king was not above the prophet. The king was subject to the prophet, because the prophet was the one who was sent by the Lord and with the Lord's authority to proclaim his word. The prophets were ambassadors. They were spokesmen. More specifically, they were covenant spokesmen, which means that they were sent to remind both God's people in general and the king in particular remind them of the terms of the covenant that God made with them at Sinai, to remind them of what covenant obedience means, to remind them of God's commands, to point out and accuse them of ways in which they violated those commands, to hold out the promise of blessing for obedience and the threat of curse and judgment for disobedience, to call men and women to repentance. The prophets, for the most part, were not really saying anything new. They were simply pointing back to the covenant and saying, remember, remember what God has told us. 
And what God will do is exactly what he said he will do. Remember. And that message was, yes, for all of God's people, because the whole nation was in covenant with the Lord. Yet, at the same time, that message was especially for its leaders, especially for its king, because the king was the one who represented the people in covenant with God. And Israel's history showed that when the king ruled in faithfulness, his people were blessed. And when the king ruled without regard for the law of God, when he was disobedient and faithless, what happened? Bad things happened. And that's good for all of us to remember and to teach our kids to remember. What happens when we sin? Bad things happen. Yes, bad things happen. Sometimes we need it put that simply. And what happens when the king rejects God's word? The entire nation suffers. The king's sin brings devastating consequences to everyone under him. And not only that, but by his sin, he sets an example that others will undoubtedly follow. That's what happens when you're a leader. People look to you, and for better or worse, many of them will imitate you. Now that should be very sobering to just about all of us. Because while none of us are kings and queens, the scripture teaches that this same principle does apply to other areas of authority. And many of you here are in some position of authority. Some here in the church, some at work, many at home. If you are a husband, you have authority. If you are a father, if you are a mother, you have authority. And for those under you, your authority will be either a blessing or it will be a curse. And the difference between the two will really come down to just one thing. Are you hearing and obeying the word of God? Are you walking in integrity, in faithfulness? If you are, then those that God has placed under your leadership are exceedingly blessed. That doesn't mean that they will all necessarily obey, but they are still blessed to have your leadership. Those that are looking to you as an example, they are blessed. They may not follow your example, but still God has blessed them through you. But if we are not, if we are not hearing and obeying the word of God, if we are not exercising authority as those who are ourselves under the authority of God's word, then God calls us to repent. He calls us to repent because no measure of natural giftedness or confidence or intelligence or experience will make up for the wreckage that we will cause by our ungodliness. 
God invites us and he commands us to repent. How does he do that? I said earlier that, you know, today we don't have Isaiah coming to confront us and urge us to turn to the Lord. Though actually we do, don't we? We've, we have it right here. But even more than that, we have a greater prophet who calls us to repent and turn to him, who has proclaimed and who does still proclaim God's word and God's will to us. In the past, God spoke and many times and in many ways by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, yes, one greater than Isaiah is here. Jesus Christ came not only proclaiming the word of God, but in his very being was and is the word of God incarnate. The true and perfect revelation of all that God is. His character, his will, his wisdom, his power is nowhere more brilliantly revealed than in Jesus Christ. And we meet that incarnate word. We meet Jesus in the pages of his written word. This is the very word of Christ in which he speaks to us. Our Bibles is where we come to see him, to know him, to hear him. To the end that we submit and conform our lives, our wills, our wants, our words, all, all to him. Now we've talked just a little bit about how God uses and used the prophets like Isaiah to call his people in general and the king in particular to repentance and to remember the covenant that he made with them. And I want to end now by just thinking a little bit more about how the prophets did that. How did they bring the covenant, God's law, God's word, to bear upon the hearts and minds and lives of God's people? Probably a lot of you have heard it said that the prophet's ministry was much less about foretelling than it was about forthtelling. That is to say, the prophets did a lot less foretelling of future events than they did simply tell forth the already clearly revealed word and will of God and apply that clearly revealed word to God's people, the the contemporary circumstances of God's people. And maybe that has become a little bit cliche to put it that way, less foretelling and more forthtelling, but I think it is still a helpful reminder. Of course, that is not to downplay the role of foretelling, the significance of foretelling. But listen, even when the prophets foretold future events, it was never for the purpose of just giving information it was never just so that people would sit back and think, well, well, that's cool to know. I wonder when that's going to happen. Let's try to figure it out. Will I be around to see it? Even the foretelling was not just to give God's people a window into the future. It was to inspire action now. To change 
to correct, to confront, to challenge and exhort and encourage men and women now. Think about Jonah, the prophet, going to Nineveh. His message was one of foretelling, wasn't it? At least it sounded like it. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But what was the point? To give the Ninevites a glimpse into the future so that they could know in advance what's going to happen in 40 days' time? No, not at all. That prophecy was to inspire action today. To drive them to repentance today. And as you remember, they did repent. And was Nineveh destroyed in 40 days? It was not. But no one calls Jonah a false prophet, do they? The point is, prophecy, whether foretelling or forthtelling, is given to effect change in the present Maybe a change in behavior to turn us from our sin, to lead us to repentance. Maybe a change in outlook to give us a fresh perspective on God's sovereignty or of his goodness, of his mercy. Or maybe a change in attitude to cause us to hope, to trust, to stop fearing. Whatever it may be, the prophet does this by helping us to see things the way God sees things. To see life as it really is. To see our sin as it really is. To see God as he really is. That is what Isaiah saw. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw. That insight into reality, beyond what our fleshly eyes can see, when we look at the world around us, when we look at the chaos, when we look at the pain, when we look at the sin, or we look at the bills piling up on the table, or we look at the scans with the doctor in his office that tell a very scary story. We see all of that. That is what our eyes see. But there is a reality behind and above all of that that we also need to see. That Isaiah wants us to recognize that there is a God who is almighty, who is great and sovereign over all the affairs of your life and over all of life, to whom the great and mighty nations and all the powers of this world together are as nothing, like a drop in a bucket, like dust on a scale. There is a God who is holy, who is incomparable, who is pure, who is good who is from everlasting to everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth, who will never faint, who will never grow weary, who instead gives strength to his weary ones because he is no less great in love than he is great in power. The God who knows you, the God who sees you, the God who promises to be with you and redeem you. 
who urges you to wait on him, to trust in him, to take your guilt and your sorrows and your fears to him, to renew your strength and courage in him. That is the God Isaiah saw. And my prayer is that through this study, through this book, that with Isaiah we will see more and more of him too. Let us pray. Oh God, we do need nothing more than a greater and clearer vision of you, of you, who you are in your majesty, in your power, in your purity, a vision that will humble us, a vision that will purify us like fire, refine us, that will cause us to see our sin rightly as you see it and make us hate it and make us run to you for refuge. God, we thank you that you have given us that vision all throughout your word, but especially the perfect vision, the perfect picture, the perfect representation of who you are in a man, in a person, Jesus Christ. That looking at him, we see you. Power, goodness, mercy, justice, love, purity. Help us to see Jesus everywhere we look in our Bibles that is testifies to that Savior that you have given to save sinners, which is what we are. We need salvation. And you are a God who redeems, a God who promises to redeem his children. We thank you that you have given us that great prophet who proclaims your word to us, Jesus Christ, that we have that word before us, that we can open up this book and hear and know that this is the very word of Christ and that word is given to transform us, not just for us to, to read and contemplate and and study, to analyze, but to be changed by, to submit to. We thank you for that word of Christ that is powerful to do that in us. We thank you that he is not just, though, that prophet who speaks your word and speaks it to us, but he is also that perfectly righteous, faithful king, the king that we need, the king that on account of whose faithfulness and righteousness, all his people are blessed, that we are dealt with kindly and mercifully and graciously because of him. We thank you for our King Jesus Help us, Father, to hear him, to follow him, to imitate him as he leads us in victory. And until he comes again, we pray in his name. Amen.